And that's just some of the things that we know about. I know that there are burdens in this room that people don't know about. Struggles with sin, struggles in relationships, struggles with suffering, struggles with God in our uh, own limited perspective. And, uh, and it's in those moments where you don't know what to do and you don't know what to pray and you don't know what to say that God meets us in just an incredible way. And one of the things that uh, we go through, that we, that we wrestle with in a moment of pain, of suffering, of just how could this possibly be happening, is what do I pray? I, I, know, I, I know I need to go to God. I'm desperate before God. What do I pray? And that's where I think our Lord Jesus gives us such a gift in the Lord's Prayer. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? One of the encouraging things that our God does when we don't know what to pray. Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. But our Lord Jesus has also graciously given us words to pray. He's taught us in his word what the desires of our heart should be. How we are to approach God. And most importantly, who this God is that we approach in prayer. So would you read with me? Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This prayer has been cherished by Christians for 2,000 years. 
untold numbers of churches have recited this prayer. It's been prayed uh, at weddings. It's been prayed at gravesites. It's been prayed in hospital rooms. It's been prayed on the battlefield. It's a beloved prayer because the beloved has given it to us. Sadly and ironically, um, this prayer has often become an empty ritual. It's ironic because Jesus gave us this prayer as the antidote to repeating empty phrases. But on the other side of that, because it has been repeated as an empty ritual, I'm afraid that oftentimes people have rejected the Lord's Prayer, not intentionally, but have maybe neglected, is a better word, neglected the Lord's Prayer because it's so often treated as a ritual. Uh, but I believe what we need, or our attitude toward this prayer ought to be neither an empty ritual nor to neglect this prayer. This is a prayer that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's given by our Lord Jesus himself. And this is a good prayer to pray. Uh, of course, we need to also recognize in this prayer, this is not a script that Jesus has given to us. There are many more things that the Bible would call us to pray. Um, but what we do have here is a model from Jesus. And what I believe Jesus wants to do with this prayer in our hearts as we think about how to approach God in prayer is he wants to shape our hearts. He wants to shape our desires. He wants to teach us not only what words to say, but but what our heart should want in prayer, what our desire should be in prayer, how our heart should approach God in prayer. And so my main point this morning is Jesus' main point in this text right there in verse 9, pray like this. Again, not a script, not pray this exactly, always, although good words to pray, pray scripture, but pray like this. Model or Shape your prayers based on Jesus' model of prayers. Let your heart be shaped by Jesus' will for our prayers. Uh, there's three points I want to draw out of this text this morning about prayer that I think should shape all of our prayers. The first is pray to the Father. Pray to the Father. This prayer is in the middle of the middle of the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus gives uh, this great sermon as one of uh, five teaching blocks here in the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about how he fulfills the law and the prophets. And he talks about how life in, this, in the kingdom of heaven ought to be lived. How righteousness looks as those um, who are in Christ, who are part of the kingdom of God, live it out. Uh, it's, he gives instructions about how our hearts ought to be toward God, and he gives instructions about how we ought to live life with one another. And right here in this section, Jesus is talking about three particular spiritual practices. So he talks about giving, he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting. And as he gives instructions about all three of these practices, uh, they generally follow the same structure, and they're generally the same length, but then in verse 7, he kind of breaks the form. He breaks the structure, 
and he interjects this teaching that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And that's where we find ourselves today. He, he, he double-clicks, if you will, on prayer and wants to give us a little bit more information on what our hearts ought to be in prayer. In all of these things, what Jesus continues to repeat is that we ought to do these things, these good things of giving, fasting, praying, not to be seen by others. But the eyes that we need to be most interested in are the eyes of our Father who sees us in secret, who loves us, who cares for us. And so he begins this little insertion at verse 7. Don't pray like the Gentiles. As we read and as we can see here, there are many pagan religions where uh, the idea of repeating phrases, repeating empty words, uh, are associated with prayer or associated with meditation. And specifically here, these, this pagan idea of prayer, Jesus says, what people are trying to do is they, they think they'll be heard for their many words. They want to be heard by God or by a God or the gods, uh, not because of what they say, I don't think that's good enough to get them an audience with the God. They don't think that they'll be heard based on who this God is. They think they'll be heard based on the quantity of words. If they, if they reach a certain word count, then maybe this God will hear them. And if this God hears them, you better hope that he can actually do something about what you would want to ask him. And you'd better hope that you know what to ask for so that if he gives you what you ask for, you actually get what you need. This idea of, uh, of repeating words is also something uh, that I encountered just the other day. I was speaking with a, a new friend um, who, who uh, professes to be a Christian and who also uh, adopts a lot of practices from Eastern religion. And he was telling me about how he uses a, a, a mantra, a, a word or phrase that uh, you repeat over and over. Um, and for him, uh, what, what he shared with me was that uh, he was trying to be spiritually transported, uh, to, to go to a higher level of spirituality by repeating this word or phrase. But in contrast to these pagan gods... who make you earn a hearing by repeating words. In contrast to this Eastern idea of repeating words in order to be transported up to God, listen to how Jesus describes our Heavenly Father in verse 8. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Unlike these pagan religions, we don't have to earn a hearing from this God by repeating words. Jesus has already done everything necessary for us to approach this God in prayer. We don't approach him by earning a hearing with all of our many words. Jesus has brought us near by his blood. And we don't have to worry that we might not communicate well to this God. We don't have to worry, oh, I hope this God hears me correctly. 
or I hope I even know what to ask for. No, before we even say a word, this God already knows what we need. He knows what we need better than we do. And unlike what my friend believed, that he wasn't in a place where he could have an encounter with God, he had to be transported somewhere in order to have an encounter with God. No, this is not the God who makes us, hey, come up here to me. Work a little harder to come up here with me to have an encounter. This is a God who comes down. This is the God who came down in Jesus Christ. This is the God who meets us where we are. He meets us in our need. He meets us where we are. We don't have to do anything to, to bring God down. We don't have to do anything to get ourselves up. We don't have to do anything to earn an audience with this God. This is a Father who loves us, who wants us to come to him, who has made a way for us to approach him in prayer, and he knows what we need before we even ask. And so we can say with confidence our Father in heaven. Have you ever considered just the sheer depth of that phrase? How amazing it is that we could ever utter that phrase, that we could ever be heard by a God like this. Our Father in heaven. He is both our Father and He is in heaven. As we saw a couple weeks ago in Revelation chapter 4, He's in heaven. He is the one seated on the throne. The one who reigns over earth from heaven. Who is sovereign over all things. Why is that important? Because He has everything we need. Whatever we could possibly need, He has it at His disposal. And He is powerful and able to give it to us. Because he reigns from the throne. He is all-powerful. He is in heaven with all things at his disposal. But it doesn't do much good if we have a God who has everything if he doesn't give it to us. If he's not willing to give what we need. But we don't just have a God in heaven who is high and distant. We have a Father who loves us. Not only does he have what we need, not only is he able to give us what we need, he wants to give us what we need. And he knows what we need. So don't miss a chance to pray to this God. Don't miss a chance to approach your heavenly father. Don't go it alone as if you don't need him. You need him. You don't have what, it's, what it takes. He is alone in heaven. He alone has the resources, what you need. Don't go it alone. But also don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to approach this God. He's a loving father. And he invites us to come to him, to ask, to make our requests known to him. So Jesus, as he teaches us to pray, encourages us to pray to the Father. He also encourages us in the first of these requests to pray for God's glory. There's six requests in the Lord's Prayer. The first three and the last three are each a set. They all uh, go together. And the first three are all around this idea of praying 
for God's glory. Isn't it interesting that as Jesus teaches us to pray, he says the first name on our prayer list ought to be God the Father. The first three things we are to pray for is your name, your kingdom, your will. Of course, God the Father's name is first on our prayer list, not because he needs us to intercede for him as if he needs something. No, it's because our hearts are to desire God's glory first and foremost. So look at these, each of these three petitions. First, a prayer, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. In all three of these, Jesus is teaching us to desire God's glory. He wants to shape our desires. And our first desire is for God to be honored. Desire God to be honored. To hallow something or someone is to regard it as holy, to respect, to honor. And God's name is his reputation. Like we would talk about someone having a, a good name. It's more than just a word. It's, it's who he is, how he's known. And so as God is honored in a situation, Jesus is inviting us to desire that God would be honored. He's inviting us to desire when we approach him in prayer, as we approach a situation, as we bring our requests to God, our first desire would be that God would be honored. Lord, whatever happens in this situation, I pray that people would think more highly of you at the end of it than they did at the beginning. Lord, whatever is going on, however you resolve this, Lord, I pray that your glory would be first and foremost. He teaches us to desire God to be honored. He also teaches us to desire God to be obeyed. He says, your kingdom come. This second request is that God's kingdom would come. There is coming a day when the kingdom, as uh, Revelation says, where the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God. Where in Christ, God will reign over every inch of heaven and earth. Where there will not be one molecule not touched by the peace of God, the righteousness of God, the good reign of the king. And so Jesus is teaching us to long for that day when everything is perfectly and totally in submission to this good, good father. And even as we long for that day, we also long to see God's kingdom come right here and now. That more and more, the reign of God would be extended. That more and more people would bow the knee to Jesus. That more and more people would come under his lordship. It's a prayer that includes, among other things, that more and more people would come to know Jesus and be saved. To become citizens of his kingdom. To say with their mouth from their hearts, Jesus is Lord. God teaches us, Jesus teaches us here to desire God to be obeyed. For his kingdom to come. For his reign to increase. For more and more people to bow the knee. And then third, for a desire for God to have his way. We're to desire God to have his way. Jesus teaches us in verse 10 pray your will be done your will be done we read jesus himself pray this very prayer in the garden 
in our scripture reading before. He said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So often in prayer, the first thing that we approach God with is our will. What we want. And there's, and it's not wrong to approach God with your desires. The last three petitions here are things that we would want. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will teach. In fact, in Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So it's not that it's wrong to ask God your requests. But the heart that Jesus wants to shape in us is a heart that desires God's will above our own. It's the heart of Jesus in Gethsemane. God, if it's possible, may you do this. But not my will, but yours be done. And in all these requests, as we pray for God to be honored, as we desire for God to be obeyed, as we desire God to have his way, we are desiring earth to look more like heaven. At the end of this section, on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's name is hallowed perfectly. It is respected perfectly. In heaven, God's reign is followed perfectly. He is obeyed perfectly. Every knee bows. His will is done perfectly. And so as we pray for those things, as we make those requests known to God, we are asking that God would make earth look more like heaven. What we see in these requests as Jesus teaches us to pray is that prayer is not about us changing God's will to look more like ours. In prayer, God wants to change our will to look more like his. He's trying to conform our hearts to his heart. And again, we still ask, this God instructs us, he commands us, he invites us to ask, to seek, to knock. But as our hearts are shaped by this prayer, as our hearts are shaped by Jesus' desires, our prayers will look more like this. God, I pray that you would heal my loved one. But if you were most glorified by her trusting that your grace is sufficient, Lord, I pray that you would be honored as your power is made perfect in her weakness. Lord, spare my life, please. But it is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to live is Christ, to die is gain. God invites us to bring our requests to him. But he invites us to find joy in seeking his glory and his will above our own will and our own desire. So we're to pray to the Father. We're to pray for God's glory. And then in this last part of the Lord's Prayer, we, we are to pray for our needs. Pray for our needs. 
So look first at verse 11. Jesus instructs us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So this is a prayer for physical needs, for physical provision. In all three of these last petitions, Jesus is teaching us to depend on God. And first, we are to depend on God for physical needs. Now, the fact that we're depending on God for physical needs, the fact that we're depending on God for food, for physical provision, that doesn't mean that we stop working and we just wait for bread to fall from heaven. No, this, this prayer, this heart attitude is to protect us from a few things. It's to protect us from pride so that as food is on our table, we don't think that we are our own provider but we are remembering that we are dependent on God for everything. So we are to approach God in prayer and ask for his provision because ultimately all things come from him. It protects us from pride, but also protects us from anxiety. In Matthew 6, 31 and 32, Jesus will go on to say, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. By inviting us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, Jesus is protecting us from anxiety. We don't have to worry about not having what we need. Instead of worry, we are to go to God in prayer and make our requests known to him. It also protects us from selfish desires. Notice, give us this day our daily bread. This is a modest request. This is not a prayer for more than we need. It's a prayer for just what we need. Uh, D.A. Carson says, this is a prayer not for our greeds, but for our needs. Jesus teaches us to be dependent on God for physical needs And by praying this, it protects us from pride, from anxiety, and from selfish desires. As we are encouraged to have a heart that's content with God's provision. The next, Jesus teaches us to depend on God for forgiveness. In verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this verse brings up a couple of questions. One of the questions, as Jesus is saying that we should pray, forgive us our debts, one of the questions we have to ask is, well, why should we pray for forgiveness? I thought, I mean, if if I'm a Christian, I thought God had already forgiven me. Why do I need to pray for forgiveness? Is is there a chance that God might not forgive me? What if I forget to pray for a certain sin? Why am I asking for, for this? Well, As Jesus is teaching us to pray, forgive us our debts, he is not trying to make us doubt what is absolutely true in the cross. This is not an invitation to doubt that Jesus paid the price once and for all and that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, he's encouraging us. He's shaping our hearts into a heart of humility. Because yes, Jesus paid the price once and for all, But every day we are reminded of our need for him to pay that price. And so we do not ask God to do something that he's unwilling to do. 
We ask something that we desperately need him to do. It's not about doubting what Jesus has done. It's about reminding our own hearts of our daily, moment-by-moment need for forgiveness. But then there's also this, as we have forgiven our debtors, and it's even confused even more as we think about these last couple verses. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, what's going on there? That, that sounds like, are, are we earning God's forgiveness by forgiving others? How do, we, how do we make sense of this in light of everything else that we know about the gospel? Well, First and foremost, I would encourage us, as we come to a a text like this, where it might be a little confusing, first and foremost, we need to have a a posture of submission to the Word of God, that whatever it says, we're going to accept it as the Word of God. And Jesus makes it really clear here. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so, there's not some hidden meaning or secret meaning. He, he says what he means. He means what he says. The question is not, did he really say that? The question is, how do we understand this in light of everything else? Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And I'll just give you the answer right now, and then we'll see it in Colossians 2. Here's the answer. Here's the bottom line. Here's the principle. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. Look with me at um, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. So Paul's writing to Christians in Colossae, and he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you are in Christ, your record of debt is taken care of, paid in full. Finished. Done. Okay, let's move on to Colossians 3 now. Look at verse 12. Writing to believers, Paul says, Put on then, or therefore, in light of what we've seen, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiven people forgive people. What we see here in this passage in Colossians, and and we see it reflected in Matthew 6 as well, is that God does not save someone without also changing them. 
when God forgives someone once and for all for their sins, record of debt nailed to the cross, he also gives us a new heart. As we come to Jesus in faith and repentance, we come to him by repenting. We are humbling ourselves before God with a heart that recognizes our great sin before God. The debt that we never could have paid. And God gives us forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But he also gives us a heart that is so impacted by God's massive forgiveness of our massive debt. That we can't help but forgive others. Because any debt that anyone would have, that we would hold against anyone else, is pennies in comparison to the millions of dollars of debt that we owed God for our sin. It doesn't make any sense for us to hold on to unforgiveness when we have been forgiven so much in Christ. Forgiven people forgive people. The two go together. By having an unforgiving heart, it demonstrates not that you haven't done enough to earn God's forgiveness. It demonstrates you don't even understand God's forgiveness. You don't know the good of the gospel. Your heart hasn't been transformed by the gospel. And so, again, it's absolutely true what Jesus says here. That if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Not because you forgiving others earns God's forgiveness, but because these two things don't exist without one another. Forgiven people forgive people. It's not a cause and effect. It's a relationship that is never broken. Because God always transforms a heart that he saves. And here's, I think, the the bottom line of how our heart ought to approach God in prayer. The new heart is humble about my sins and sins against me. The new heart is humble about my sins and sins against me. We approach God in prayer humbly confessing, Lord, I need your forgiveness today more than I needed it yesterday. I am learning more about the dark depths of my old self every day. Lord, I have a million more reasons to ask for your forgiveness today. I'm reminded more and more of the debt that I have owed you. Forgive us. Forgive me of my debts. And Lord, I know that the debts against me are nothing compared to what I, what I owed you. And I am not more holy than you are. So Lord, there is no way I could possibly hold on to this while I'm also trying to receive your forgiveness. Forgive me, Lord. Then lastly, Depend on God for protection. So as we pray for our needs, we are to depend on God for our physical needs, to depend on God for forgiveness. We're also to depend on God for protection. We see that in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
So again, this request also raises a question. Why are we praying, lead us not into temptation, if, as James says in James chapter 1, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Um, I was actually asked this question the other day uh, by a friend. Why would God ask us to pray, lead us not into, tempt- into temptation? What, why would God want to lead us into temptation? And so I gave this man an explanation of this verse thought was really helpful and he looked at me with refreshing honesty and he said that doesn't make much sense the way you just explained it so I'm hoping to do better this morning (laughs) so uh, if you would turn with me to James chapter 1 I want you to see this James chapter 1 is the verse uh, that I just read James chapter 1, and we'll read verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14. But each person is tempted... When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So let's right out of the gate, get out of the way. God does not want to tempt you to sin. So this prayer is not, God, don't tempt me. That's not what he is saying. It's lead us not into temptation. And what sheds more light on that line is realizing that these two lines are a pair. Uh, we see this kind of thing in the Psalms and the Proverbs where there's these pairs of lines. And one, uh, each one sheds light on the meaning of the other one. So he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And your Bible, uh, your uh, translation may have a little uh, footnote there that that can also be translated the evil one. When we take all that together, we start to get a little bit more into focus what we are praying for when we're praying. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are not asking God not to tempt us. No, we are tempted by our own desires. And the tempter himself is often after us. And so as we approach God in prayer and ask him to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we are asking God for spiritual protection. God, protect me from my own heart that would tempt me to sin against you. And protect me from the evil one who is more powerful than me, who wants me dead, and who I cannot stand against on my own. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In the previous request, we prayed, forgive me where I have sinned. And in this request, we pray, God, protect me from sinning again. Protect me because I want your name to be honored. 
I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. And so, Lord, protect me from being tempted to dishonor you. Protect me from sinning against you. I love you, my Father, and I don't want to do anything that would dishonor you. There are many times in Scripture, many times in our lives, where we experience great seasons of trial, suffering, pain, where temptation is ramped up. God doesn't tempt us, but God does sometimes lead us into trials. In those trials, our own hearts might tempt us to sin. In those trials, the evil one might be after us. In fact, sometimes what the enemy means for evil is actually what God is meaning for good. Sometimes the tempter himself is God's instrument, not to tempt us, but to test us. I mentioned James before. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There may be seasons in our lives where we experience the testing of God. And in that, what we need to pray especially is, God, lead me not into temptation. My own heart and my own desires are tempting me. Even in this pain and the suffering that I'm experiencing, they're tempting me to be bitter toward you. But Lord, I know that what the enemy means for evil, you mean for good. And so Lord, may my faith be tested and may it be proven. May I increase in steadfastness and in love for you through this pain, through this suffering. Protect me from what the devil means for evil. And lead me in what you mean for good. You may be familiar with the story of Job. Here is Job, righteous before God, and the evil one, the tempter, comes before God, and he says, the only reason Job honors you so much is because you've made him rich and healthy and given him a family. And so God, in his sovereignty and his power, uh, as one uh, preacher said, uh, lets Satan off the leash to go and he permits Satan to take this man's wealth, to take his family, to take his health. And the tempter, make no, make no mistake about it, wanted evil. He was the evil one who was after Job's soul. But God permitted that to happen, not to tempt Job, but to test Job. And in that, God was proven glorious, even as Job was tested. But a far better example is our own Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Immediately after his baptism, in fact, turn back with me to that chapter the very beginning of chapter 4 of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by 
the devil. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit didn't tempt him. No, the evil one tempted him. But he was tried. He was tested. And Jesus, in the way that only he can, was tested and proven to be the Son of God. The one who, with the Spirit of God and with the Word of God, resisted the evil one. Who was protected by God as he used the Word of God, as he was filled with the Spirit of God, in order to say no to temptation. And so as we pray this prayer to our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are given this prayer not by someone who doesn't know what it's like to need to pray this prayer. We are given this prayer by our Lord Jesus, who has been tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And so we can pray, Lord, forgive me where I have sinned and protect me from future sin. So as we consider these prayers, this prayer that Jesus instructs us to pray, uh, my encouragement to you is to don't be afraid to pray the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't have to be an empty ritual for you. Pray like this. Pray To the Father, approach the God who has what you need and wants to give you what you need. Pray for this God's glory, that he would be honored, that he would be obeyed, that he would have his way. And bring your needs to him, your physical needs. He cares. Bring them to him. Bring your sins to him for forgiveness, for cleansing. Because this son, who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, was tempted and tried and tested all the way to the cross, where he paid your debt. We owed a debt to God that we never, ever, ever could have repaid ourselves. But Jesus has paid our debt in full by giving his perfect, sinless life on a cross. He died taking the wrath of God that you deserved for your sins. And he rose again. His death was completed. He defeated death. He has come back to life. He is alive now, seated at the right hand of our Father in heaven. And he offers you eternal life. Not if you earn it. Not if you forgive enough. But simply by trusting in him. By placing your confidence not in yourself. But placing your confidence in Jesus in his death as your substitute, in his life for your life for all of eternity. And so I would encourage you um, 
if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know this Father in heaven, would you come talk to me afterward? I would love to talk more with you about how you can know this God, this God in heaven, this Father who can be your Father if you trust in his Son. As we conclude our worship service this morning, it seems fitting as we think about prayer, as we think about our Father in heaven who invites us to come to him in prayer, that we would conclude with the time of prayer. Well, so today, the way we're going to do that, um, we are going to have a song, um, which is a prayer. Uh, we're going to pray together as we sing together. It's a prayer for, from our hearts. Uh, but I would also encourage you, during this time of response, uh, if you want to pray in other ways, that you feel free to do that. Maybe you want to pray with your spouse. Maybe you want to pray with a friend. Maybe you want to pray as a family. Maybe you want to pray alone. Maybe you want to pray in your seat. Uh, maybe you want to come up here. We have a place where you can kneel if that's where you want to pray. You can go to the back and kneel and pray. Um, or you can stand and sing and pray in song. But as we conclude this time of worship, as we think about Jesus' instructions to pray, um, I would invite you to think of this not just as an instruction to pray or instructions about pray, but an invitation to pray. An invitation to approach God, the Heavenly Father. So as we conclude this time of worship, uh, I'm going to pray for us. And then after I pray, we will have an extended time of prayer. And I would encourage you uh, to respond to the Lord um, how you need to. So let's pray and then we will all pray uh, together. Father in heaven. You are a good God. And we need you so much. Lord, I ask that even as we enter into a time of response, responding to your word that you have spoken to us through this book, that you would be honored. Lord, that our hearts would bow to you that our wills would bow to yours. And Lord, that we would feel the freedom of being adopted as your children. The freedom to come to you with our requests. The freedom to come to you with our sins. The freedom to come to you in desperate need of your protection and your care and your hand. Lord, I, I pray that all across this room, Lord, that we would not miss out on an opportunity to respond to your invitation to come to you in prayer. Lord, be honored as we continue to worship you. We love you and praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.